Welcome to CUCC Sermons for Everyone. No matter who you are or where you find yourself on life's journey, we're glad you've tuned in, and we hope you find meaning in this week's sermon. Well, friends, we are back at it. We're once again following the Israelites on their extended and dramatic journey to the promised land, to the land of milk and honey. Well, if you were with us last week, we read quite the story. For a while now, we've been reading stories of the Israelites complaining, complaining against God, complaining against Moses, Aaron, complaining about anything and everything to anyone and everyone who would listen over and over until finally things went too far. A few toxic voices rose to the surface, threatened to ruin everything, and God swallowed up three families into the earth and burnt 250 of their staunch supporters. As you might expect, a uh, display of divine wrath and violence like that one, it can be motivating, right? And so, I've been trying this screen and it's not working. So, we're gonna start this over. And you may not ever see that again, but this has been a year in which screens have been helpful. So as you might expect, after last week's story, if you heard it with us, it was motivating, right? People aren't about to fall out of line after something like that happens. They're not about to go at Moses again. And so they actually start moving as a unit, right? It's maybe not the best tactics on God's part, but it was effective, So the people move together. Time passes and they progressively get closer to the promised land. Again, this land of milk and honey. However, the closer they get to the promised land, the more often they bump into people who already live there and battles break out. The Israelites defeat anyone who opposes their progress. They've now moved on. We talked about the three locations. They've moved on from the desert at Kadesh all the way to Moab. They can almost taste the promised land, but their presence isn't celebrated by all. And so this morning, we're going to read together from Numbers 22. And here's the deal. This story is so wild that I don't think you'll believe me unless you read along. So you don't have to, but there are blue books in front of you. I encourage you, if you'd like to, grab one, read along in your pew Bible. It's page 156. 156. Don't feel pressure to. I'm going to read all the words, but uh, this thing might get a little crazy. As I said, we're going to have fun this week. So Numbers 22. You can tell we're getting to the end of this book. Numbers 22, starting in verse 1. The Israelites set out and camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan from Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. It was a previous battle they had just won. 
Moab was in great dread of the people because they were so numerous. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Now Balak, son of Zippor, was was king of Moab at the time. He sent a messenger to Balaam, son of Beor at Pethor, which is on the Euphrates in the land of Ammah. And he sent a message to summon him, saying, A people has come out of Egypt, and they have spread over the face of the earth, and they have settled next to me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are stronger than I. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. And so this is the start of a good story, right? Essentially, Balak, the king of Moab, is freaking out that this massive horde of people who have a reputation for God being on their side has showed up at their doorsteps. They're freaking out, and so Balak does what every good king would do, He calls for a magician, a wizard, a diviner of sorts with a reputation of being so powerful that as we read, whoever he he blesses is blessed and whoever he curses is cursed. And so they try to pay him to curse the Israelites. Let's keep reading. Back to verse seven. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian depart with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. He said to them, Balaam said to the messengers, stay here tonight and I will bring back word for you just as the Lord speaks to me. So the officials of Moab stayed with Balaam. God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, has sent this message. A people has come out of Egypt and has spread over the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the officials of Balak, go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the officials of Moab rose and went back to Balaam and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. So we'll stop because there are a couple interesting things there. First, to no one's surprise, God the I am who I am, the pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, the one who brought the descendants of Abraham out of the land of Egypt, that God is opposed to Balaam cursing the Israelites. Right? No surprise there. God is not a big fan of the chosen people being cursed. What is surprising, at least to me, is that Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is on the Euphrates in the land of Ammah, a.k.a. not a descendant of Abraham, a.k.a. not one of the chosen people, that Balaam speaks to God, listens to God, and seems to fully recognize God, almost as if 
It was the same God that he'd always gone to when performing these blessings and curses that he'd become famous for. He's not shocked to hear God's voice or receive God's direction. He's, he's super chill about it and just says to the royal messengers, I can't do it. God won't let me curse them. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Once again, Balak sent officials, more numerous and more distinguished than these. They came to Balaam and said, Thus says Balak, son of Zippor, Do not let anything hinder you from coming to me, for I will surely do you great honor, and whatever you say to me, I will do. Come, curse this people for me. But Balaam replied to the servants of Balak, Although Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. You remain here, just as the others did, so I may learn what more the Lord may say to me. That night, God came to Balaam and said to him, If the men have come to summon you, get up and go with them but do only what I tell you. So Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the officials of Moab. So we pause again. King Balak sends the A-team, right, and promises even greater reward if Balaam's willing to travel with them and curse the Israelites. It's the age-old assumption that everyone is able to be purchased for a price. And once again, Balaam needs to talk to God, but not just any God. Did you catch it? Balaam said, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord, small caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the Lord, my God. Once again, Balaam, a foreign diviner, not only hears and obeys God, but recognizes God's voice and presence and then refers to it as the Lord, my God. Right? Apparently, this isn't the first time they've interacted before. Apparently, the God is my God to more than just the chosen people. Mind blown, I know. The plot of this story pushes against the construction that God only chose the descendants of Abraham, only cared about the descendants of Abraham, and was completely unavailable to anyone other than the descendants of Abraham. It's interesting. We could chase this for a long time, but I'm just going to leave that one hanging there for the rest of the sermon. So God says, go for it, Balaam. Go with the royal messengers, but only do what I tell you to do. So verse 21. So Balaam got up in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the officials of Moab. And then God's anger was kindled because he was going. And the angel of the Lord took its stand in the road as his adversary. It's like, wait a minute, did we read that right? I thought God just told him to go with them. Then why is God's anger kindled? Because he went with them. That's what it says. So what kind of confusing game are we playing here? God says, Balaam, don't go with them. And he doesn't. And then God says, Balaam, you can go with them. Just do what I say. Balaam listens, gets up early, goes with them, and immediately God's anger is kindled because he was going with them. 
what? Have you ever been in one of those situations where you think you're doing what was asked of you? You think you're doing what your, your spouse may have asked of you, but it was opposite day and no one told you? Friends, here's the deal. At the end of the day, this turn in the plot is not logical. I'm comfortable with saying that. Most commentators are comfortable with it as well. God says go, and then as soon as Balaam goes, God says, just kidding, now I'm angry. Don't spend any more time scratching your head. That's literally how the story progresses, and the truth is the plot's just gonna get crazier from here, so let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 22. God's anger was kindled because he was going, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the road as his adversary. Now he, Balaam, Balaam was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. The donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. So the donkey turned off the road and went into the field, and Balaam struck the donkey to turn it back into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyard with a wall on either side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it scraped against the wall and scraped Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck it again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it laid down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled this time, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And apparently Balaam has some pretty wild life experiences because he doesn't seem at all surprised that his donkey's talking to him. Instead, he just starts talking back. Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had my sword in my hand. I would kill you right now. But the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey? which you have ridden all your life to this day, have I been in the habit of treating you this way? An emphasis inserted. Touche. No, Balaam says. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his drawn sword in his hand, and Balaam bowed down falling on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? I have come out as an adversary because your way was perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned away from me these three times. If it had not turned away from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let it live. Then Balaam said to the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know you were standing in the road to oppose me. Now, therefore, if it is displeasing to you, I will return home. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with these men, but speak only what I tell you to speak. So Balaam went with the officials of Balak. I told you the plot got crazier. 
God says, don't go with them, and Balaam doesn't go. Then God says, go with them, and Balaam goes with them. God gets angry that he listens, sends an angel, an invisible angel, with a drawn sword. Balaam doesn't notice the angel because in case you missed it, the angel was invisible. Balaam beats his donkey three times. The donkey starts to talk to him. All of a sudden, God opens Balaam's eyes. He's finally able to see the invisible angel, and the angel tells Balaam that he was about to kill Balaam for not being able to see him, despite the fact that, once again, he was invisible. Balaam says, I'm so sorry. I've sinned. I'll turn around and go home if you want me to. And the angel says, no, it's okay. You can actually keep going now. (laughs) What? What is the point of this whole thing? What kind of backwards Groundhog's Day shenanigans is God trying to put him through? And, And what on earth should Balaam do now? What would you do? Right? Is, is it still opposite day? The angel of death almost killed him for listening, and now he's telling him to just keep going on his way. Once again, maybe like last week, the tactics might be a little scary and confusing. But God certainly is instilling in Balaam uh, that God's in charge here. There is no way that Balaam's going to make a run for it, right? Or or choose to switch teams partway through now that he realizes there could be an invisible angel of death following him around. And so let's cut to the chase. So we're not going to read all of chapter 23 and 24. Balaam goes with them. He meets King Balak. He builds seven altars on which he makes seven sacrifices seven times, just and just each time as King Balak thinks he's about to curse Israel. He speaks a blessing on them. Over and over, King Balak says, I'm not paying you to bless them. And Balaam says, I can't do anything but speak what the Lord tells me to speak. And after the seventh failed attempt to curse Israel, we read at the end of chapter 24, then Balaam got up and returned home. And King Balak went on his own way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So what do we do with it? It's fun reading the whole thing, isn't it? Well, we have a couple of things we can talk about. I know it's a long story, so the sermon part's going to be rather short. The first thing is, we're reminded you can't only read one story, any singular story for that matter. If this was the only story you read in the Bible, you would be crazy to attach yourself to this thing we call church, right? If this is your first Sunday in church, I'm sorry. <laughs> We get to have some fun. Uh, when we read through the Bible, we, we come across some really inspiring moments. Last week, we come across some really dark moments. We also come across some silly, confusing, just scratch your head and slowly walk away moments. But even in these moments, even in these odd stories where the plot has you feeling like you might know less about God than before you started, Even here, there's some lessons to be learned, some questions that we can be asking. So here's a question for you. 
And we have to go back to the very beginning of today's story to get at it. When given the opportunity to bless or to curse, why do people so often choose curse? And what I mean is that if the king of Moab, if Balak had a connection with such a powerful diviner, such a powerful magician that we read, whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is cursed, why doesn't the king of Moab ask for a blessing on his own country instead of a curse on the other? Right? Why doesn't he ask Balaam to stand with them instead of stand in opposition to Israel? Why do we often think that cursing or, or tearing down our opponent is more powerful than building up ourselves? I wonder how many areas in our life we watch that dynamic play out. Right, when arguing with our spouse, a colleague, a customer service representative, I wonder how quickly, without even thinking, we start trying to expose the flaws in someone else's argument instead of listening, instead of reflecting on our own position. When responding to a new idea, a proposal at work, at church, at home, I wonder how quickly we scan for the defects before putting in the hard work to recognize its nuanced worth. When the NFL playoffs begin and the Bears and Jags are nowhere to be found, instead of cheering for a different team, why do we all simply cheer against Tom Brady? Why do we do it? Essentially, I wonder, right, what's the blessing to curse ratio in our life and in our world? I wonder how often we choose polemics instead of writing our own prose. I know it's 4th of July, so I'll be gentle. But one of the most obvious ways in which I've watched this play out is American politics. From presidential candidates to local representatives, it often feels like there's more energy, money, and time spent attacking opponents, smearing campaigns, and announcing all the things that we stand against and will overturn immediately than is spent developing their, their own platform producing a compelling narrative, working to do any sort of good. P.S., we all know it happens on both sides of the aisle. Both sides use psychologists to identify regional fears so that they can target attack ads that will trigger the most concern. Both sides follow their opponents' campaigns around, waiting to capture photos or sound bites, anything they can twist into something incriminating. When locked in on a debate stage, even in the primaries, for goodness sakes, it often feels like the majority of time is spent just throwing other people under the bus, right? And not even answering questions. Like King Balak of Moab, when given the opportunity to invest in their own campaign or curse their opponents, it so often feels like, like people, like we, choose to curse. And I think it's because it works. The problem is it works so well that not only does it get people elected, but it begins to shape the rhetoric of a people, the rhetoric of a nation. 
the polarizing language, the incessant cursing of the other, I do believe that's why it can be so hard for people to talk about things that matter to them without sounding angry. I do think it's why so many people have such a hard time describing a future in which they want to live, but can ramble on and on about how the system is broken. Constantly choosing to curse one's opponent. Well, it's lazy. It's uninspiring. It's definitely not interesting. And as we read today, it's also nothing new. When given the choice to seek blessing for oneself or curse for one's opponents, people, humanity, we have been choosing curse since the beginning of the beginning. And so today we we read a fun story, albeit an odd story with some plot twists, a talking donkey, an invisible angel of death who changes his mind. And as odd as it was, It was a moral tale, right, in which we are presented with the option to bless or to curse. Those who were motivated by fear chose curse, and God kept choosing bless. And not just once, God caused Balaam to bless seven times. A a biblical number of completion, God caused Balaam to bless completely, to bless only, to fully and wholly bless God is a God of blessing. And so, people of God, despite the the power of cursing one's opponent, despite the prevailing negative or polemic rhetoric around, despite how much easier it is to complain about what is, instead of taking the vulnerable step to stand up for what could be, despite it all, we must be a people of blessing. Together, as we enjoy this holiday week and as we go about our coming weeks, let us refuse the allure of negativity and instead let us embrace the power of God, the power of love, the power to bless one another. Amen.